That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Jen, for reading for us. Uh, one of the things they uh, tell you when you're learning to preach is that you should never start a sermon with an abstract idea. You don't want to awaken that part of people's brains before you've really made them uh, feel something first. So I'm going to open with an abstract idea this morning, realizing that I'm breaking that golden rule, and uh, we're just going to have to work together to see how it applies. I want to start with an abstract idea. I want to try and explain why that idea is important and how you see it in the passage, and then I want us to come and consider it together and think about how it applies. So here it is. Here's the abstract idea for you this morning. It is this, that your, your enjoyment of the Christian life, that is the the quality of your Christian life, if you want to put it that way, is directly connected to the story that you tell yourself about what the Christian life is. Your your enjoyment of the Christian life, your experience of the quality of the Christian life is directly connected to the story that you tell yourself about what the Christian life is about, what it is. Uh, You can put it in more technical language if you like. Your Christian experience is a function of your Christian doctrine. I guess you could put that the other way around. Misunderstandings or mistakes or even just misproportions in your understanding of the Christian faith will massively affect your experience of it. Now, I've been thinking about this for a few weeks, and you're just... uh, hearing it cold. So let me try and illustrate it to you as you uh, ponder on it. Uh, May Miller was an African-American who died in 2014. Uh, A few years before her death, she went to hear the historian Antoinette Harrell give a lecture where she was explaining how she'd been tracing the ancestry of African-Americans after the abolition of slavery in 1863. After the lecture, uh, May went to speak to Antoinette, she queued up, because she wanted to tell her her own story. You see, incredibly, May and her family had been slaves in Louisiana right up to 1963, when May was 14, even though that was 100 years after slavery had been abolished. So May's family were routinely beaten, they were sexually assaulted, they worked for no pay, they were kept in squalid conditions, for generations and generations after the Civil War had been won and after the Confederates beaten. How so? Well, in their wickedness, the landowners on whose land May and her family had lived for generations kept secret the truth of the emancipation of slaves from them. The truth of her freedom was a long way from her experience. Experience and truth were in conflict, not because her freedom wasn't true, in a kind of ontological, as it really is, sense, but rather her freedom had not been brought into her experience because she'd been lied to about it. Her experience had not yet heard the truth. Now, obviously, May is different because the facts of her freedom had been deliberately withheld from her by wicked people, but the truth is, I think, and I want us to tackle this this morning, is that that many Christians live a spiritual version of May's life. Not because necessarily the truth of Christian freedom is withheld from them, or because it's not true, but because simply they don't understand it, or they haven't thought about it. They haven't, to use the words of our passage, considered it. So instead, we read the truth 
off our experience and tell ourselves something false about the gospel and then live in the, in the shallowness and the frustration that that brings. You see, when Paul opens chapter 6 with a question, what shall we say then, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound, chapter 6 verse 1, I don't think he's asking a flippant question. I don't think the Roman Christians are like, oh, brilliant, you know, sin to the max, grace to the max. That's what it's all about, isn't it? If, if our salvation is not in our actions but in Christ's actions, then hey, sin max, grace max, that's brilliant. I'll just go off and do whatever I like. I, I don't think it's that. Rather, I think the point is that if salvation is found in Christ and not my actions, then what value do my actions have? What becomes of them? Who am I? What am I to do? What value do they have? You know, am I just to keep on sinning in order that I might receive abounding grace, as chapter 5, verse 20 puts it? Is that, is that it? You know, am I a Christian by name, but still effectively bound to sin like everybody else? Am I saved from sin's judgment, but still bound by sin's reign? Now, if you think about it, that question bites, isn't it? Because that's how many of us live the Christian life. We live the Christian life as if Jesus is some kind of forgiveness machine, just like I'm a, a sin machine. So I keep screwing up. You know, I'm, I'm selfish, I think of myself ahead of others, I gossip, I lie, and Jesus just keeps graciously forgiving me. But beyond that, there's really no change in me. There's no change in my status or anything. I, I just sin and receive grace. Sin, grace, sin, grace, sin, grace, sin, grace, until the day that I die. As chapter 6, verse 1 puts it, is this it? Continue to sin that grace may abound. Sin, grace, sin, grace. Is that it? But what Paul wants us to see in Romans 6, and we'll see it this week and next week, is that that is not supposed to be an adequate summary of the Christian experience. Our understanding of Christian doctrine should change our experience of the Christian life. So look down at chapter 6, verse 11. This is the very first instruction in the whole of Paul's book, right? This is the first point in Romans that you get to. Right, okay, guys, do this then, do this. I, I've taught you all this stuff, now do this. And what does he say? Chapter 6, verse 11. Consider. You must consider, he says. In other words, the first instruction that Paul gives is one to think, to reckon, to understand, to count. The root of the word there is literally to speak, to tell, to talk to yourself. Not firstly to do or to act or to work, not even to look at what you do, but to get your head straight, to get your doctrine on point, so that our Christian experience might flow from it, rather than our experience shape the truth. Now, I understand that I am laboring this a bit, but I, I'm going to keep going because it's so important that we're clear on this. Paul, Paul is telling us in this chapter to do the opposite of what we tend to do, okay? I wonder whether this is particularly in our point in history and culture, but we, we tend mostly to work out what we think to be true from our experience of things, don't we? You work out what is true by what you experience. That's definitely how we're told to work out who we are, isn't it? We experience things in a certain way, then we work out what is true. And if we apply that to the Christian life, then that the power of the gospel, the radical nature of God's work for us in Christ, is, is something that we, we only believe is true if we feel it. So when we're doing well as a Christian, maybe we're feeling motivated, we're meeting the aspirations that we set for ourselves, we're we feel moved in a gathering of the church, we do a good job of sharing the gospel with someone, 
are brilliant. The gospel's fantastic. The gospel's true. And I'm definitely a Christian because look at the way I'm living. But if, on the other hand, and I would suggest maybe more often that we struggle, maybe we don't read our Bible as often as we'd like to, maybe we don't feel moved in church, well, then we go, the gospel's not true, is it? I'm not really a Christian. But Paul is telling us this morning, now listen, do the opposite of that. Let your Christian doctrine shape your Christian experience. Don't work out whether the gospel is true or your standing before God is, is justified by how you live. Don't read backwards from your experience into your doctrine. Rather, tell your experience the truth of your doctrine. Speak the gospel to your experience and let it shape you. You know, tell May Miller that the civil war has been won. Slavery has ended. You are free to go. You are a free woman. Those who are keeping you enslaved are liars. Go free. Go free. Now, with that in mind, that abstract idea and that principle, which hopefully you now understand, I want to tell you three truths from the passage, three truths, three doctrinal truths from the passage, and then we'll do some considering of them. So let's look at these three truths. First one's this, we died. We died. I'm not going to spend ages on this because we saw this last week. I have a limited number of sermons left uh, before we uh, get to the end of Romans 8, Lord willing. But this is the first thing Paul says in response to the question in verse 1. Look down. Sin grace, sin grace, sin more, more grace is not the summary of the Christian life because in becoming a Christian, in putting our faith in Jesus, receiving justification by faith, we are united to Christ so that what he does, we do. So he dies for sin and we die in him, says Paul. So it's a contradiction to live in sin any longer. In verse 3, look down at verse 3, he brings up baptism. Now, don't get distracted here. He's not so much giving us a, a liturgy for a baptism service. Rather, his point is that in becoming a Christian, you have become engulfed in, immersed in, drowned in Christ, consumed by his death. This is a spiritual baptism of which the physical dipping in water represents. By faith, we are buried by baptism into death, verse 4. United with Jesus in death, verse 5. We have died with Christ, verse 7. Uh, here's the point, says Paul. Our relationship with sin is like a dead person's relationship with action. Not that once you become a Christian, you enter a state of moral perfection. I think some people have argued that, but that makes a nonsense of why uh, Romans 6 and 7 are here at all. If, if perfection was our experience and that was possible and it was true and what the Bible was teaching, Romans 6 and 7 wouldn't need to be in here. Well, the point is that whilst it might still not be our full experience, the reality is that by faith in Christ, we're dead. Dead to sin. Sin is alien to us, dead to us. This side of glory, we are still carrying around a dead us, and the dead man or dead woman twitches every now and again. But justification by faith, salvation in Jesus, involves a fundamental break with the rule and reign of sin because we're dead. Not notice we will die or we are dying, but died, dead. Verse 6 puts it like this. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's the first truth. We died. We died. Second truth. We're alive. We're alive. Again, this is what we were considering last time as we considered union with Christ. 
that by faith we are united in the death of Christ, but also by faith we are then given a newness of life, as it's put in verse 5. Now there is a distinction here, isn't there, in the way that the passage talks about this new life compared to the death. Notice we, we are dead. Uh, it's been done. The death is past and completed and finished. And the life is ours in part, but is also still ahead. So verse 4, we're told that we are to walk in newness of life. Present tense, we are, verse 4, to be walking in newness of life. That's to be our current experience. But verse 5, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's a future experience. We will also live with him, verse 8. Even while, verse 13, we have been brought from death to life. Now, I, I think it's possible for us just to get in a bit of a muddle here about what is ours today and what is still to come, yeah? But I wonder, and I, I guess it's different in different churches, but I, I wonder if I know us well enough to know that as a sort of conservative evangelical church in middle-class Egberth, probably our greatest danger really is maybe to put too much of it in the future and too little of it in the present. You know, I don't know whether you think like this, but you think, you know, heaven's going to be brilliant, isn't it? can't wait for glory. You know, I can't wait to be rid of sin completely. I can't wait for sin and sickness and death to be completely gone. And we make rather little of the walking in the newness of life today. See, let me just try and put that emphasis, if I, if I can. You know, here's the reality. We are still yet to taste the full glories of resurrection life. All that is ours in the Lord Jesus is still not yet our full experience. But listen, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have today a newness of life to live, to enjoy. And it's not, the, it's not wishful thinking. It's not the power of positive thinking. This is a concrete, in-life New from Christ, life for us to live. The Holy Spirit given for us, a reality for us to live. So, you know, this new life comes with new desires. New desire to live for God, to, to lose our life in his service, to see others come to faith as we share Christ with others, to reach out to those in need, to move across cultural barriers, national borders with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. A new desire to fight sin, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit for the glory of God. A new desire to pray, to read God's Word, to chew on it, discovering Him in it, to praise God and worship Him with body, mind and spirit. None of those desires are natural to us, but they exist in our life because we are made alive. The new birth is ours, and those things exist in our life in Christ by the Spirit. And those things grow... Those things flourish in our lives as, says Paul, we consider again what it is to be made alive, what Christ has done for us. It means that people who would otherwise have tried to be good for selfish ends, maybe used godliness as a means to score points over others, are now given a whole new set of desires. A whole new life opens up before us, an opportunity to lose ourselves in the blazing brilliance of the glory of Christ. We're going to think about that some more in a moment. Third truth, we're free. We're free. This is Paul's other angle on the whole death and life thing. So we've gone from death and life now to kingdoms and reigning powers. 
So look down at the passage, verse 6, he talks about being enslaved to sin. We are in the realm of Adam, he says, the kingdom of sin by nature. We are slaves to sin. So all that we do is tainted by and marred by sin. The Bible doesn't tell us that we're all as wicked as we could be or all as wicked as one another. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's nonsense, isn't it? Well, the point is that for everyone by nature, under the realm of Adam, we cannot but help to be selfish sinners, bent away from God and living for ourselves. That is our DNA, if you like. It's who we are. But, verse 7, death sets us free. You know, we are liberated by death. Sin has us, but we die in Christ and are liberated by death for new life with Christ. Verse 9 says that death, as in the death penalty for sin, no longer has dominion over him. Verse 14 points out that as sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We'll see more of the law next week. Let, let me try, and, uh, I'm going to borrow an illustration from a preacher who's long since with the Lord Jesus, so he won't mind me stealing it, uh, and I can just do that with, uh, with complete freedom. Okay, he says this, we need to imagine two fields, okay, for us city people, a field is where like, animals live, okay, two fields, you'll know that though, won't you, Henry, uh, two fields, right, and down the middle of the two fields is a road. The field on the left, is, this is my left. I'm going to stick with this because otherwise I'll get confused. The field on the left is ruled by a tyrant. It's full of mud and dirt and squalor. And the tyrant is constantly issuing brutal commands to everybody who dwells in that field. The field on the right is full of rich grass. It's run by a kindly shepherd who uh, leads on to life joy and fruitfulness. Now, in becoming a Christian, we cross the road, we move across the road in Christ. He brings us from the field of mud and squalor into the field of grass and life and joy and peace. Now, the thing is, in the field over here, you can still hear the voice of the tyrant telling you what to do, telling you to be selfish, telling you to get angry. But here's the thing, you don't have to listen. Why? Because you're no longer in the field of a tyrant. You're in the field of joy and peace. You're in Christ's field. We're we're no longer resident in the place where he rules. And that's the image in Romans 6. We have moved from the realm of sin where sin rules and reigns, and we are now in the realm of Christ. We have died to that. So as loudly as he shouts and as appealing as some of the suggestions might be, the truth is we don't have to listen because he has no claim on us anymore. No power over us. So those are the three grand truths of the passage. We are dead, we're alive, we're free. Finally, let's uh, think then, and hopefully in a bit more detail, about verse 11. Let me read verse 11 to 13 to you. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now let me say here, firstly, Paul, when he says, listen, you must consider this. He's not asking you to consider something that is untrue, or might become true if only you think about it hard enough. This is not the Christian equivalent of looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning going, I am beautiful, right? I am, that's a lie, right? Well, it would be for me. It's a lie. I am beautiful, I am beautiful. It's not that. Rather, well, the point is that you and I, if we're Christians this morning, we must tell ourselves over and over and over and over again the truth. Why? Well, because verse 12 suggests a horrible possibility for you and me in our Christian lives, which even as a Christian, it is possible to be held hostage to the passions of our flesh so that our mortal bodies, verse 12, or our members, verse 13, this physical us, becomes an instrument of unrighteousness rather than an instrument of righteousness. It's back where we started, isn't it? This is the spiritual version of May Miller's story, where what May needs to hear is the truth to stop listening to the story that her captors were telling us. So Christians, because of our failure to tell and retell ourselves the truth of what Christ has done, maybe just because we're lazy, right? It's too lazy to think seriously about the Christian gospel. Or, or maybe just because we go to a church where the teaching is so shallow. Or even, God forbid, we go to a church where the teaching is, is wrong, so they don't tell us the truth. And because of that, we waste our physical lives in half-hearted, godless living, living like slaves to sin when the truth is that we're free from its claims. But we don't consider it. You know, Christianity becomes like a kind of forgiveness bolt on it. You imagine, we still sort of think of ourselves in the, in the field of mud and as if Jesus kind of throws a forgiveness bomb to us every now and again. Here you, go, you need another one of those. You need another one of those. It's not that at all, is it? We've been rescued and brought across. So let me just try and land this if I can. And let me say, as I do that, I, I'm not trying to beat anyone with a stick. I'm trying to paint for you, weekly as I can, a, a glorious picture of what freedom in the gospel should look like for us as Christians this morning. I want us to, to feel this morning liberated to live godly Christian lives to the praise of the Lord Jesus. Let me speak first to Christian young people. Okay, All of you listen to that because you all think you're young. Christian young people, what does it look like for you to live a Christian life at school amongst your friendship group? You know, why is it that although everybody around you is hooking up, getting high, getting drunk, why is it that you shouldn't do that? Why is it that you shouldn't date a non-Christian or cheat on your exams or lie to your parents or scroll through porn on your phone? Is it because if you start to do those things, then maybe the gospel is not true and perhaps, you know, it's not powerful enough to save you? It's not like it's the other way around to that, isn't it? You don't do those things because the gospel is true and because you are now alive in Christ. Now, at the moment of temptation, this truth, bring this truth to your mind. Consider the great fact that you have been liberated from the field of mud and squalor for the field of lush grass and joy and glory. In the, in the moment of temptation, you say to yourself, I am dead to this. 
I'm alive in Christ. I'm free to do what I was always made to do, what I will be doing for all eternity. I'm free to live the life that God always intended for his people to live, a life of freedom in him, feasting on his word, enjoying his life, glorying in his loving kindness. Say that truth to yourself. Consider that. Uh, Think about it like this. If you're a Christian young person this morning, I want you to understand, if you're trusting in Christ, if you've become a Christian and put your faith and hope in Christ, it's not so much to think that you shouldn't sin. I mean, I guess that is true in a way, that you shouldn't sin. There are things that you shouldn't do. It's not that so much. It's this, get this, you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Isn't that amazing? Imagine that liberty, to not have to sin. How amazing is that? To be liberated from our selfish desires, to be an instrument of righteousness as we consider this great truth of what God has done for us. No longer trapped by self-indulgence or nailed down by the, the pitiable dreams of our fallen world. Free to live for God in his glory. And we'll stumble and fall but we're still in Christ and we're still forgiven and the gospel is still true. What about the rest of us? What are we to make of this all? Well, really, it's very much the same. What is it that will help you overcome that mucky desire that you have to cover things up, to lie and mislead, to become cynical and hard-hearted, to parade your achievements before others so that they're impressed with you? What is it that's going to help you when you're known to be grumpy at home but thought well of in church? What is going to free you from that uh, desire just to follow your money in a passion for comfort and vainglory? What's going to help you in the face of the growing onslaught of pride and all its ugliness? What's going to help you in the seemingly never-fading battle with destructive lust? Are we just to capitulate? Oh, well. I know there's forgiveness. I was going to sin some more and receive some more grace. Is the fight useless? What does Paul say? By no means. We're dead to those passions. Those are the twitches of a dead man or a dead woman. They're the voices from over the hedge. We're people of the truth. We spend our days telling ourselves the truth, the truth that we died, that we've been made alive by the Spirit, that in our mortal bodies now it is possible for us in newness of life to have the glorious opportunity of being an instrument for righteousness, a tool in the hand of the living God, used for his glory, displaying his nature. If, if we will consider the truth of our union with Christ is more powerful than our sin. You know, progress in the Christian life is possible because we don't need to listen to the shouts from over the road. The truth is, in Christ, we are alive to gentleness and dead to grumpiness. In Christ, we are alive to integrity and dead to murky lies and deceit. In Christ, we are alive to loving others for their own good and dead to lusting after them for our own satisfaction. Now, I'm not saying this is going to be easy. I'm not saying that we'll never struggle with sin again. and We'll come on to talk about that some more in Romans 7. Rather, what I'm saying this morning to us is if we will stop considering our experience as the way to determine Christian truth, but we'll start instead to tell ourselves Christian truth, that it might shape our experience, then before us lies this glorious possibility, both as individuals and corporately as a church, 
that we can live as instruments of righteousness to the praise and glory of God. Imagine that. Imagine that. What wonderful places the Lord will lead us to. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Have a moment just to think and ponder on those things, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that you tell us in your word, which we wouldn't stumble upon in a million years of investigating it for ourselves, but that by your Spirit you've opened our eyes to it, even this morning, seeing that in Christ we're dead to the murky tyranny of sin, and we're alive in Christ to be instruments of righteousness, to live for your praise and glory. Please help us, we pray, to keep telling ourselves the truth, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray.